Well, we lived uh, life on the wild side yesterday in the McLean household. Um, yeah, uh, trouble. Ezra has been growing up a lot recently, and so we thought it was about time that we potty train him. And so yesterday, uh, Ezra hung out at our house with no pants, no diapers, pull-ups, underwear, or anything on the bottom half of his body. Uh, he ran around naked all day until we left for uh, La Comedia. About uh, a little more than 20 of us uh, had a blast last night at La Comedia. Um, and so while we were at La Comedia, uh, Michaela watched uh, Ezra for us. And for both of their sake, we put some pants on the boy. Um, but as we went uh, throughout the day, uh, we took him to uh, the big boy potty uh, about every 20 minutes. And by the end of our trial, he shot well above 50%. Um, I lost track uh, uh, somewhere along the way, but at one point in time, he was shooting nine for 12. Um, and I don't think he missed after that. And he only partially fell in the toilet once. And so I would consider that a roaring success with his first day in the big leagues going to the big boy potty. It's definitely not a performance to be ashamed of yesterday for him. And it's not a performance to be ashamed of. It was a roaring success because of the context of the situation. Context is everything. He went from sitting on the big boy potty a handful of times in the past month or so, but never actually peeing in the big boy potty, to peeing well over 10 times in the big boy potty in one day. Uh, sometimes he, he, he would sit there and he would dribble a bit and then he would go stand up, he'd flush the toilet, he loves flushing the toilet, he'd go sit back down, a couple more dribbles, stand up, flush the toilet again, do that three or four times. But he, he, was, he was doing really well under the context that previously he had not gone to the big boy potty at all. He had sit on it a couple of times uh, the past month or so, but he never actually went pee um, on the big boy potty. So we can be impressed with his performance yesterday. Now, if I told you that yesterday I went nine for 12 yesterday and making it to the big boy potty and only partially fell in once, None of you would be impressed with me, or let me rephrase this. I hope none of you would be impressed with me. That either says something about you or your uh, view of me. And so I hope you, you would not be impressed by that. And so we should always keep in mind uh, the bigger picture and remember the context of the different situations and circumstances that we find ourselves in. And, th and that is an extremely valuable practice for us as we continue our series on the book of Romans. Uh, well, we're going to be reading from Romans chapter three. So you can go ahead and find your way to Romans chapter three. Thus far, uh, Paul has talked extensively about our fallen nature as human beings. If one were to provide an outline for the book of Romans, you could separate the first 17 verses of chapter one as an introduction where Paul tells uh, these Christians at Rome, both Jewish and Gentile Christians, that he longs to see them and that he's not able to visit them right now, but, but he wants to preach this gospel message to them. And so, so instead of going 
physically to the city of Rome at this time. He is going to write a letter presenting the gospel message to the church at Rome. And so that's the kind of the first 17 verses of chapter one. And then chapter one, verses 18 uh, through chapter three, verse 20, uh, Paul is going through an extensive demonstration of the fallen nature of mankind, where in the beginning, everything was perfect. Adam and Eve, they, they had perfect fellowship, perfect communion with God himself. They, they could, this was after uh, their sin, but, but it records, Moses records that they could hear the Lord walking through the cool of the garden. How cool would that be? But of course, as many of us are aware, Adam and Eve, they partook of the fruits of the knowledge of tree and evil. The one rule that they had where they couldn't do that, they did it and they committed sin and then sin entered the world. And ever since then, sin has run its course on this world. And so Paul, uh, through uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 3, verse 20, the section of scripture that we'll read uh, today, starting in chapter 3, Paul has demonstrated how both the Jews and Gentiles have succumbed to the weight of sin. And so it's been a gloomy start to the presentation of the gospel. There, there's no denying that. And today we are going to continue along those same lines, the, the, the gloomy uh, nature of humanity and, and the depravity of, of humanity and how we have fallen. And so it's a gloomy start, but we must understand that it is an extremely important start it's imperative that we all understand the severity of sin and how widespread it is in our world. And we can see that without this gospel message that Paul will be presenting through uh, the book of Romans, there is zero hope for humanity. Zero hope. If you don't see that uh, after uh, reading through these first three chapters uh, from the book of Romans, I don't know uh, what to tell you. And the sad reality is that many people, the majority of people in our world today live in a world where they have substantially zero hope in their life. And that breaks my heart. That, that is not a world, that, that is not a life that I want to live. I want to put my hope, I want to put my faith, the foundation of our faith in this gospel message, in this good news. And so when we read this first section of the letter within the context of the entire message that Paul is writing, it shows how gracious God is. It shows how merciful he is, how loving he is as our heavenly father. As we'll see later on, how God showed his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ, God's precious son, died for us. What a wonderful, wonderful father that we serve and we worship. And so if you want to discuss the love of God and the great plan that God has for you, then you have to start with how we as human beings have fallen. And so with that said, let's continue our discussion on the fallen nature of humanity as we start in Romans chapter 3. So in Romans chapter 3 verse 1, Paul writes, Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? 
By no means. Let God be true, though. Everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to afflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still be, being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. And so like a, a decent chunk of scripture that we've covered in Romans thus far, uh, this passage can be uh, pretty difficult to understand at an initial glance. As Paul, again, he's being pretty wordy here. Um, but it helps us to understand this passage if we remember that Paul is essentially holding a debate or a conversation with an imaginary person, essentially. He's essentially holding a hypothetical debate with an objector, um, kind of uh, asking questions about these different claims that he is making. William Barclay, a well-known theologian, outlines this in a very clear manner in his commentary, The Letter to the Romans, which if you're interested in a good commentary on the book of Romans, that's a superb one. It's been a tremendous resource for me thus far in going through this book of Romans. And he types out what the argument in full could have looked like in his commentary on pages 60 and 61. And he writes, and we have a PowerPoint, Ben, if you would show up the PowerPoint, I added the verses to help us follow along here. But here, uh, William Barclay is essentially going through hypothetically this debate that Paul is having with this uh, imaginary objector. So in in verse one, uh, again, this this is William Barclay's work. In verse one, uh, he writes, the objector says, the result of all that you've been saying is that there is no difference between Gentile and Jew and that they are in exactly the same position. Do you really mean that? And so a uh, context before this in, in chapter two, uh, we, we dealt extensively with uh, separating both the Jews and the Gentiles. And we saw that the Jews on one hand, they were a sinful group of people. And we saw on the other hand, the Gentiles, they were, you guessed it, a sinful group of people. And, and so Paul was lumping them together in one category. And the subjector is saying uh, that there's no difference between Gentile and Jew and that they are in exactly the same position. Do you really mean that? And in verse two, Paul, by no means, the objector, what then is the difference? Paul, for one thing, the Jews possess what the Gentiles never so directly possessed, the commandments of God. We continue in verse three, the objector, granted, but what if some of the Jews disobeyed these commandments and were unfaithful to God and came under his condemnation? You have just said that God gave the Jews a special position and a special promise. Now you go on to say that at least some of them are under the condemnation of God. Does that mean that God has broken his promise and shown himself to be unjust and unreliable? And so this objector is taking a look at this old, these Old Testament passages and the promises that God is making to the Jews. And now we're saying that, that some of these Jews have been unfaithful and they are under the condemnation of God. So this objector hypothetically asked Paul, does that mean that God has broken his promise? Does that mean God is a liar and has shown himself to be unjust and unreliable? And Paul answers in verse four, far from it. 
What it does show is that there is no favoritism. Uh, he writes it in the Greek, O-U-R, favoritism uh, with God and that he punishes sin wherever he sees it. The very fact that he condemns the unfaithful Jews is the best possible proof of his absolute justice. He might have been expected to overlook the sins of this special people of his, but he doesn't. And so God made these promises in the Old Testament to, to his special group of people, the Israelites, the Jews. And yet some of the Israelites are unfaithful to God. And because of their unfaithfulness, because of their disobedience, God judges them. God condemns them. And that is a perfect representation of the absolute justice that God has. For God does not show any favoritism to any group of people. And so the objector then in verses five through uh, the first part of verse eight, objector then, very well then, all you have done is to succeed in showing that my disobedience has given God an opportunity to demonstrate his righteousness. My unfaithfulness has given God a marvelous opportunity to demonstrate his faithfulness. My sin is therefore an excellent thing as giving God a chance to show how good he is. I may have done evil, but good has come of it. You surely can't condemn someone for giving God a chance to show his justice. So you see uh, the, the, the rationale that the subjector is, is giving. Well, well if God uh, judges uh, due to our sin, then our sin then leads to a good thing. And so all the more good that we commit sin as we are giving God uh, an opportunity to express his absolute justice. And then Paul, uh, the second half of verse eight, an argument like that is beneath contempt. You have only to state it to see how intolerable it is. So long story short, that's ridiculous. That is a ridiculous claim that you are making. Sin is not a good thing. Their condemnation is just. As some people slanderously charge us with saying these things, it is beneath contempt. And so Paul did think, Paul did think that the Jews had a special position in relation to God. And the Jews absolutely would have agreed with this sentiment. The Jews thought that they had a special privilege being from the line of Abraham. And we can see uh, some, some of uh, their uh, biasy and, and some of their favoritism that they think they have with God and this uh, objector, hypothetical objector, and the questions that he's asking Paul. And so the Jews thought they had special privilege being from the line of Abraham. But on the other hand, Paul believed that the Jews had a special responsibility as these Jews, these Israelites from the Old Testament, they were entrusted with the commands of God. They were entrusted with the oracles of God, the laws of God. And because of this, they had a special responsibility on their plate. They were entrusted with the writings of the Old Testament. In a very similar setting, we today, we have a special responsibility where we have been entrusted with the word of God. It's not necessarily a special privilege, but, but a special responsibility. God doesn't show favoritism to, to any uh, particular group of people, but God has entrusted us with his word, and he exacts judgment on everybody, and whether we are obedient or not, whether we have a living and active faith in God and his son, Jesus Christ. 
An interesting uh, side note as well here, uh, this objector uh, that Paul seems to address tries to justify his or her wrongdoing uh, by stating, my unfaithfulness has given God a marvelous opportunity to demonstrate his faithfulness. I want to give us a, a stark warning. We have to be wary of this. It's human nature to try and justify our actions. And that may lead us to try and justify our wrongdoings and sinful behavior as well. We're all familiar with the term blinded by love. You know, sometimes uh, someone can be in, infatuated in love with someone, but all of their, their loved ones, all their other uh, family and friends see the danger that this person poses them, but they are blinded by love of this person. In the same sense, a lot of times we are blinded by love of self. Sometimes we, we, we try and justify our wrongdoings because we are so in love with ourselves and surely we would not do X, Y, or Z. And so I, I think it's human nature to try and justify our actions and the way that we respond to people around us or the way we respond to our heavenly father. But just be careful of that natural tendency to try and justify our actions as that's what uh, this hypothetical objector seems to be doing here by saying, my sin is a good thing. It it leads uh, to God having an opportunity to show his absolute justice. So be careful of that. And so as we continue along uh, in this passage in verse nine, Paul writes, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks are under sin. And so Paul asked this all important question, what then or what now? In response to this uh, hypothetical uh, debate or conversation that Paul is having uh, with this objector, uh, we we have here uh, really the central verse in this passage that, that we're reading today, that both Jews and Greeks are under sin. Everyone is under sin. Without Christ, everyone is under the power of sin. We know there was only ever one human being without sin in his life, and that was the Son of God, Jesus of Nazareth, our Lord, our Savior, the Christ, the Messiah, you name it. He's the only one, only human being who is sinless from beginning to end. The rest of us, we fall into this category uh, of all Jews, all Greeks, or Gentiles, of all human, uh, of all the, the human race, we all fall under sin. It's kind of been uh, his key point really throughout uh, these past couple chapters that we're all under the influence and the power of sin. So Paul continues in verse 10, he says, as it is written, No, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together, they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood and their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace, they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. 
And so what we see here, in verses 1 through 8, Paul's having this hypothetical debate. And that hypothetical debate leads Paul to state that all are under sin in verse 9. And then in support of this claim that all are under sin, Paul then rattles off a handful of scriptures from the Old Testament to to support this claim that all are under sin. Uh, mostly uh, from the book of Psalms. What we have here in verses, uh, the second half of verse 10 through verse 18, we have quotations from Psalm 14, verses 1 through 3, Psalm 5, 9, Psalm 140, verse 3, Psalm 10, verse 7, Isaiah 59, verses 7 and 8, and Psalm 36, verse 1. Many of you guys can see that in your cross-references in your Bible here. And so, so Paul is using the Old Testament scriptures to support this claim that all are under sin, both Jews and Gentiles. Uh, William Barclay uh, takes note that his quotes from the Old Testament are slightly off. We, we see here uh, Paul's recordings of these verses in verses uh, 11 through 8, um, but they're slightly off if we were to go back and actually read them in the Old Testament. Uh, William Barclay uh, makes this the suggestion that he appears to be quoting by memory. And he gets the main point across in each passage, but they can be worded differently. And apparently this was a common practice among rabbinic preaching or or Jewish preaching, uh, those who preached regarding the Old Testament. They would string uh, together a long list uh, of passages from the Old Testament back to back to back to back to back. I have to excuse my uh, pronunciation. I'm not sure how it's pronounced, but they called it karaz or charaz, uh, which literally means stringing pearls. I, I love that idea of stringing pearls. Uh, the, these are pearls of great value, and, and these preachers would string the, these valuable verses back to back to back to back. And that's what Paul is doing here. He, he's, he's listing, rattling off these verses back to back to back to support his claim that all are under sin. And these verses truly do show the depravity of mankind. For without Christ, no one is righteous. We also see in this passage that without Christ, no one does good. Their throat is an open grave. Their paths are ruin and misery. And he he finishes off here, verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. This reminds me a lot of the book of Judges. The book of Judges has got to be the ugliest book of the Bible, where uh, before Israel had any kings, they had local military leaders who were called judges. And when the people had a God-fearing judge or leader, they would follow after God. But then that uh, leader would then pass away, and the people would fall away from God. The whole book of Judges is, is one repeating cycle, repeating itself over and over and over again. So when the judge would die, the the writer of Judges repeats this line throughout the book, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So when the people had no king, when they had no leader, when there was no king of their heart, we see the wicked, awful, ugly, ugly things that people do in the book of Judges. It's an ugly world to live in, when God is not the king of your heart, when you have no fear of God before your eyes. And and Judges paints a a very accurate but yet ugly picture of what life looks like when everyone 
does what is right in their own eyes. And we see some of that today as well here in America and some of the surrounding nations. You turn on uh, your news channel uh, for five minutes and you see the, the ugliness of what takes place when everyone does what is right in their own eyes because they have no fear of God for them in their eyes. And so Paul closes out here in this uh, passage of scripture that we'll read this morning. In verse 19, Paul writes, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And so here uh, in, in uh, the, the ministry of Jesus, we, we see uh, the Jews, specifically the Pharisees, who were huge into following the law of God to a T and the traditions that they had as a group of people, and they sought to justify themselves with the law. Here, Paul is saying that by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Now, why is this the case? Why, why is no one justified through the law? He says, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Through the, these uh, different commands that God gave throughout the Old Testament, we have knowledge that we are not perfect, that we have sin in our life. That, that was one of the, the key purposes of the law, to bring light to this fact that, that, that we have sin in our life, that we have missed the mark. No human being fulfilled the law perfectly. So they brought forth knowledge that they missed the mark. They had sin in their life. And so as we wrap up uh, here uh, this morning, uh, we have to remember again, the purpose of the letter is to walk through the gospel message to the church at Rome since he's not able to visit them right away. And outside of these first uh, 17 verses of the letter where Paul introduces the letter, Paul talks extensively about sin. Just about everything from chapter 1, verse 18, and chapter 3, verse 20 uh, has been all about how the Gentiles and Jews, both alike, are guilty of sin. All are under sin. And I understand it's not the most fun start uh, in the world, but it's very much needed. Our sin provides a deep need for a savior. If you and I were perfect, if we had no sin in our life, we would have no need of a savior. But because of our sin and our fallen nature and our fallen stance between us and God as human beings, we need a savior. We need someone to save us from our sin. And all Paul has done really to, to this point in the letter is he's brought light, he's brought attention to the fact that we have sin, that we are guilty of sin. But I praise God that Paul does not stop the letter at chapter three, verse 20. I thank God that this is just the beginning. This is just the beginning of the presentation of this gospel message that Paul presents to the church at Rome. For the beautiful thing for us is that before the foundations of the world, before God formed the heavens and the earth, God knew his Messiah. God knew his chosen one. God knew that he was going to need a savior to save the world, someone to die for our 
sin for our mistakes as human beings. So that tells me that, that he knew that mankind wouldn't fall to sin with this beautiful gift of free will as well. And so I want to read, uh, we're really closing here in, in verse 20, but I want to read uh, just a, a quick peek, peeking ahead, just two words, just, just two more words in verse 21, as Paul writes. He says, but now, but now, we're going to see everything changes with Jesus. Starting in verse 21, Paul brings in the Messiah to this conversation. He's brought light that we have sinned. He's brought light that, that without Christ, we are doomed. And it's kind of disappointing. It's kind of upsetting at this point. We, we've hardly even talked about the name of Jesus. We've just been focusing on ourselves as fallen human beings. But now, after all this talk about the sin that we have in our life, we get to talk about the Messiah. We get to talk about the promised one of God. And I cannot wait to do that. I cannot wait to talk about the fulfillment of the plan that God had through his son, Jesus. And so I strongly, strongly encourage you guys to stay tuned with us as we continue through this letter, as it's been a very gloomy start to this letter, talking about how we are all under sin, but it's very needed because without sin, we have no need of a savior. But with sin, we have every need of a savior, of someone to save us from our sins, a sin that leads to death. And in many of his other writings, Paul acknowledges the, the own sin that he had in his life. Uh, in his letter to Timothy, he calls himself the chief sinner. But Paul knew that he was going to be saved. He had confidence in his salvation. And he is confident that what Christ had done for him as someone who persecuted Christians themselves, he's confident that Christ can do that for everyone else as well. And we see this at the start of verse 21 as Paul outlines the saving grace provided to us because of our sin. And so as we transition in, into communion uh, this morning, uh, we can reflect on how wonderful our heavenly Father is. That he would offer us a clear path to salvation in the midst of our sin. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And today we're, we're going to be doing a communion uh, slightly different. Today we're all going to be uh, administering communion on our own. As I want you all to spend some time alone in prayer with your heavenly father, confidently and humbly approaching his throne. I want you all to acknowledge and confess your sin before God, whatever that may be. Have you fallen to the temptation uh, to lust, to lie, to get drunk, to gossip? Have you not done something that you should have done? Have you not prioritized God? Have you made an idol in your life? Have you made an idol out of your family, out of your spouse, out of sports, out of your friends, out of your job, out of your money? Confess those sins before God and ask for forgiveness and thank him for his forgiveness made possible through his son, Jesus Christ. And so Julie will be uh, playing background music for us. And uh, 
we'll give you all about five minutes to seek God in prayer and take communion. And we all, it's imperative that we all remember that as we partake of communion, this bread represents the body of Jesus being broken for us, for our sin. As he was hanged on that cross and his body is truly broken. In this cup that we partake as a family, this cup represents the blood of Jesus being spilt on behalf of you. So take about five minutes or so seeking God in prayer, uh, confessing your sins, asking for forgiveness, and thanking him for the beautiful gift of forgiveness. And in about five minutes, the worship team will come up and lead us in that last song.